All right, well, this is actually a great day uh, to visit because we've just started going through the whole Bible. We're in Genesis 1 uh, today, so this is going to be good. I have a couple of uh, preliminary words, uh, a couple of things I want to talk about before we dive into Genesis. Excuse me. Um, The first one is, I got... I got more questions this week about uh, Bible translations. Um, I guess my my uh, exhortation to go pick up a, a physical Bible that you're going to use for the next five years um, raised a lot of questions about the translation. So I wanted to mention a few things about translations. Um, it's actually good to know these things. Nothing nothing too technical, but um, so. Bible translations, obviously, uh, there's a lot of them. If you go into any Christian bookstore, you'll find uh, just more than you would ever care to, to know. It's actually kind of shocking when you start realizing how many, <laughs> how many translations there are. Um, but they basically fall into three main camps. Actually, they all fall along a spectrum, kind of bunched in three main camps, types of translations. One, one would be literal or another way of saying that would be like word-for-word translation, um, where they try and maintain the structure of the, the Hebrew Old Testament sentences and the Greek for the New Testament sentences, try and maintain word-for-word accuracy, okay? Um, the second camp would be the, the thought-for-thought translations. Uh, these are also called dynamic equivalent translations, where they, they take not the individual words, but they translate sort of the idea behind each sentence. Uh, and, the, and again, it's a spectrum. Like some of these take more liberties than others, but they're called dynamic uh, translations. So for literal, um, obviously the king of, of the literal translations is the, is the king, King James uh, version. Uh, it's also the oldest. I would say, just as a side note, it's the, it's the finest English translation, okay? Not... It, it's, it's the most beautiful, all right? If we're talking about uh, historical significance, literary quality, um, you know, knowing the King James is, is a lot like knowing Shakespeare. You just realize how many phrases we use that are from the King James Bible, like give up the ghost or and it came to pass and all these things. That's King James language, all right? So it's had a profound impact on the English-speaking world. Uh, another <clears throat> literal one would be the New American Standard Bible. Uh, that's probably the most literal out there, um, if you want the most literal. Um, the New King James and the ESV, these are all basically word-for-word translations. The thought-for-thought uh, translations are the NIV, and I'm just listing the most popular ones, I think, the most prevalent. Uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the New Living Translation, and again, those are, the New Living is probably on the on the more liberal end of the spectrum, not, not like politically liberal, but they take liberties. Um, and the NIV is pretty close to... Um, it's not that far away from the more literal translations. Uh, and then the third camp, the third kind of grouping of translations would be uh, paraphrases, which these, <clears throat> depending on which one it is, are not actual um, translations from the Greek or Hebrew text. They are... Rewording and, and they're actually not meant to be primary translations. They're meant to be tools, study tools. Okay, so like the message 
okay? Um, but there's also, there's also like specialty or more niche translations. Um, some of them that translate, um, uh, they really focus on the names of God or they really focus on this or that feature of, of translation. Um, there's the Amplified Bible, which has like parenthetical, basically synonyms for different words. And it has like three or four different synonyms and that kind of thing. Um, and this doesn't even get, get into the, the study Bibles, which are Bibles with notes uh, alongside them. And there are even, there's like, however many translations there are, there's ten times that many study Bibles. Okay, you have the Fireman's Study Bible. You have the, um, you have the uh, Working Mother of Three Study Bible. Um, there's all sorts of study Bibles out there. Um, there's more study Bibles than there are like chicken soup for the soul, okay? Um, let's just put it that way. So <clears throat> here's what I recommend. I don't recommend one translation, okay? That's the only thing I don't recommend, only using one, okay? Because every translation is a translation, okay? And no translation is perfect. Um, so the only thing I don't recommend is only ever using one translation. Um, the other thing I recommend is reading the preface to your translation or any translation that you use, and it will tell you what its philosophy of translation is. It will tell you up front. You know, a lot of them, they're not, they don't hide really anything. They'll tell you, yeah, we made these choices and we took these liberties, and this is sort of the philosophy behind the translation. So just read that, and those are actually very informative, and you can kind of know, it makes it a little less mysterious. You can kind of know what it is that you're reading. Um, so I, I recommend, um, <clears throat> personally, I use the ESV daily. Uh, I don't think that that's what you have to use. Um, a lot of people read the King James. There's some NIV folks. Anyone who was around Dan Hamill, I think, reads the NIV. <laughs> um, he was a big NIV uh, fan. But uh, like I said, the, the only thing I don't recommend is only ever using one. Uh, you've, got to, you've got to have a couple that you go to. Um, so I would say it's good to have one from each camp, right? One literal, one dynamic, or at least use one. You don't have to own three Bibles, right? There's plenty of websites that you can look up all the different translations and compare them. Um, so when you really get into deeper study, um, it's good to have two or three or four just to round out your understanding, Okay, the first step of, of inductive Bible study is observation, meaning let's see what's there. Okay, and having a couple translations will get you pretty close to seeing what's actually there. Um, and I was going to say one more thing. I forgot. Um, okay, so the other thing <coughs> is... Um, I mentioned last week that you, uh, you know, keep in mind questions that you have. Um, and I, I should have explained this a little more because one of the things I'm hoping that happens as we go is the Bible will tell us what are the important questions. Okay? There's, some, there's, there's a, a, a phenomenon that happens when, when 21st century people approach the Bible. We have all sorts of 21st century questions to ask of the Bible. Well, the Bible wasn't written to answer 21st century questions. There are some 21st century questions that can be answered by the Bible, but that's not what it was written to do. 
right? It was written to answer uh, big questions that doesn't, doesn't matter who you are, but also some particularly historical questions in the ancient world, all right? So we cannot bring post-scientific revolution scrutiny to Genesis 1. It doesn't work, right? Um, it, it simply wasn't written to answer some of those uh, questions that we have. Now, does it answer some of them? Yes. Does it answer all of them? No. And nor does it set out to. So as we think about questions that we have, um, I want us to think in terms of the big questions, because the, the, the Bible answers the big questions. All right. And it may or may not answer all of your smaller questions. Does it make sense? So the big questions are questions about worldview. The Bible will give you a worldview, which is not a set, not so much a set of beliefs um, as it is a pair of glasses through which you view reality. Okay, we all have a worldview. We have a way that we interpret uh, everything that happens, everything that floats through our consciousness. We have a way of interpreting it. We have a way of saying, oh, well, that's because of this. That's because of this. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we have that, okay? Um, the Bible seeks to not, not so much answer all of the questions according to our worldview. The Bible is meant to give us a new set of glasses, all right, so that we can see reality differently. Now, will a lot of questions be answered once you put on those new glasses? Yes. But will all of your old questions be answered? No. Does that make sense? So don't, don't get bogged down and don't get confused when you find it hard to answer some of the questions you have, put those on the shelf and let the Bible tell you, all right, what are the questions you should be asking? What are the questions we're dealing with here? And these are questions like, who are we? Right? Um, where are we and why are we here? All right? Now, those are questions that we can start to answer from Scripture. Because those are questions that don't have to... Those are just human questions, right? Those aren't American questions. Every human has wondered, who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with the world? And what's the solution to what's wrong in the world? Okay, these are the questions we want to answer first. Okay, and let the Bible shape, frame our worldview, shape, put, you know, give us that set of lenses through which to view the world, and then... We can go on and say, okay, given all of these basic things about reality, now what kind of questions are important? Does that make sense? All right, so I, I wanted to say that just because everybody did, did such a great job of responding to my challenge to get, get a Bible uh, and to responding to my challenge to, to really ask questions and, and have, you know, send me some questions. I got a lot of great questions. Um, so... Um, those are sort of clarifying remarks. All right, Genesis 1. <clears throat> I'm, we're, what we're going to talk about today is just Genesis 1 and 2. I know we read Genesis 1 through 5. Um, we'll catch up a little bit next week. Um, I'm not going to step through Genesis 1 through 5 this morning. There's just simply no way. Um, I hope I can get through Genesis 1 and on into 2. But uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are... The two chapters in the Bible that we have that, that are pre, that before the fall of man, okay? And it's really the seedbed of, of reality, okay? Uh, we learn so much about those big questions. Who are we? Where are we? What's wrong? What's the solution? Um, 
what's wrong and what's the solution, those are really, those start to be answered in chapter 3. But, so today we're going to talk about 1 and 2. Next week we'll talk about 3, 4, 5, and beyond. Because starting in chapter 3, you have the fall of man, the rebellion of mankind. And then the rest of the time, up till chapter 12, it's really dealing with the fallout of the fall. Okay, the, the rippling effects down through the generations of the decision that Adam and Eve made to reject the command of God in the garden, to, to do things according to their own will. All right, so in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the question here that we might bring to the text from the 21st century is, well, how? And when? And how long did it take? And what was this? And what was that? Okay. What scripture, what the question scripture is answering here is who is God and how do we get here? Okay. It's not seeking to answer all of those technical questions. All right. So who is God? God is the creator. And if we step back into the ancient world, we find that this stands out like uh, it sticks out like a sore thumb among all of the other um, cosmogony. This is the, the beginning of the cosmos. All of the other myths that talk about the beginning of things. This sticks out. Because in every other pagan myth, the first thing that's there is an impersonal, primordial... Uh, they call it, some people call it a womb. <laughs> or a soup or a just a a chaos of forces okay and then what happens is creation sort of boom erupts out of that all right and creation is sort of an accident or the product of of chance or in a lot of myths it's the it's the uh it's what resulted after some deity became dismembered (laughs) right that's what creation is Okay, so if you read this against the backdrop of the ancient world, what this is saying is there was a person who had a plan, and the plan was to bring creation into existence, to create, right? All of those are massively important philosophical truths and theological truths. Okay, so we read in the beginning, God created them, okay, let's get on. But how many days? What was a day? Was it a 24-hour day? Well, wait, wait, wait. Let's stay with God created the heavens and the earth, right? That shapes so much of your worldview, you, have, you don't even realize it, okay? It means that there is a person, not a, right? And in Greek mythology, there's these fates. Like, even the gods are subject to fate or chance or the will of another god. No, there was one will, there was one person in the beginning, and he chose to create and he was intentional and then all through chapter one you see that he saw it and it was good it's what he meant to happen it was good it was realized intention it's what creation is because in so many other pagan myths creation is not realized intention it's sort of collateral damage to whatever else was going on in the heavenly realm what other shenanigans all the pagan deities were up to, okay? But no, this says that there is a line between the created order and the creator. And he stands outside of the created order, outside 
of all of the business of mankind, outside of all of the natural forces, okay? because pagan deities, what are they? They are a projection of the chaos that is human life onto the, onto the realm of the deities. So what do we see in pagan theology? A mess. Why? Because it's a mess down here. So it must be a mess up there. Right? It's a projection. Okay? You could say it in, in very Genesis terms. It's God created in the image of man. Okay? But that is not the way that it happened in reality. The truth of Scripture, which is man was created in the image of God. And we've gotten off track. But that's where it started. It was a personal creator who realized his intention fully in creation. And it was good. It wasn't accidental. wasn't collateral. wasn't some sort of freak accident after some scuffle between Cronus and his children. Whatever. Okay? It was intentional, purposeful, and good. <coughs> okay. So the other thing that we see is that the earth, it says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering hovering over the waters and God said. So how did he create? Did he get in a scuffle with his other other, uh, gods and semi-gods and 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 everything just sort of fall out and there, there was creation? No. God said. God spoke, and he created light. So he created by his word. He had a purpose, he had a will, and he spoke it into being. All right? Particularly, he spoke into a realm that was formless, had no form, and was empty. All right? By the way, uh, it says in Genesis, and I think this is no mistake, and God said happens ten times in Genesis. There are ten words of creation. Okay? Um, The earth was without form and void. God spoke, and here's how creation happens. Did you notice in chapter 1 that there's a very formulaic way that each day happens? It's very repetitive. Okay? Okay. and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Then the second day, and the third day. Okay, and there are six days of creation. The seventh day he rested. Well, they're structured in a very interesting way. The first three days, you could say God is forming different realms and regions. And the, the fourth through six days is he is filling those realms that he set up. Those, those areas, okay? So you see in days one through three, the earth was out without form, Formless and empty. So he forms it and he fills it. See how that works? Days one through three, when he's forming. First thing, he separates light from dark. Okay? Second day, he separates the sky from the waters. He creates basically the expanse or the vault is another way of saying it. The the heavens. Okay? The third day, he creates land masses. And separates the seas from the land. And then on the land, 
he brings forth vegetation. Okay, he does two things on day three. Uh, there's two and God says on day three. There's also two and God says on day six. So days four through six, then he fills these forms now that he has brought into existence. Day four, what does he do? He puts heavenly bodies in space, right? So when it says in the beginning and God said, let there be light, there wasn't any sun or moon yet. There was just light itself. Day four, he goes back and he says, all right, I'm going to have the sun govern the day and the moon govern the night. I'm going to put these heavenly bodies in that they are going to be the source of light and darkness. Okay. So he fills the heavenly bodies. uh, He fills the, the heavens with the heavenly bodies. Day five, he fills the expanse, the sky, with birds, and he fills the seas, the waters under the expanse, with fish. Day six, according to pattern, he puts land animals and creeping things on the dry land. And he does two works on day six. He puts man as the second work on day six. And he gives man, <clears throat> man is the, the, the crowning achievement of creation. Um, chapter two delves into more detail about the, the actual creation of man. But uh, he puts man there and he says, uh, let's read it. Uh, chapter one, verse 26. Um, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, so he, he brings forth man and woman as a unique being, okay? And it's unique in the fact that it, it, it's the only, of, of all the created beings and things, it's the only one that, that bears the image of God, okay? Now, that doesn't mean, you know, we share characteristics as evolutionists are quick to point out. We share characteristics with apes. We share characteristics with other members of the created order, but we don't share that characteristic with anyone else, that we are in the image of God, okay? <clears throat> One aspect of that is, is the ability to have relationship, okay? The other one is free will, right? We have a, we have a, a rational capacity, okay? A dog... I guess a dog can do it at once, but it's basically going to be acting according to instinct at any given time. <laughs> a human can say, I have an animal instinct, but I can choose what's good rather than just obey my animal instinct. And this also included the capacity to, to, to love, Right? Part of relationship with God. God created in the image of God. He said, let us make man in our image. We talked about last week that it was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the beginning. 
creating man to share in that fellowship, in that relationship. So part of the image of God, what? He has to create male and female. Relationship. Okay? One man by himself can't really image God because God's not one man by himself. He's three persons. Um, And then finally, on day seven, I think it's good to point out that man's created at this point, day seven. So man's first day with God was the Sabbath, was the day of rest, was the day of communing with God. Right? He didn't create man, give him a job, and say, see you later. He said, I created you. I'm giving you dominion. I'm giving you work. I'm giving you responsibility. Now be with me. Let's commune, and then let's get to work. Right? And I think that's a, that's a very important thing for us to remember. That man's first day was a day of rest with God. So chapter, that's chapter 1. And chapter 1 talks about the forming and the filling of the created order. It presents us with a God who is intentional, who stands outside of the created order. Right? He's not subject to seasons. He's not, subject, he's not the sun. He's not the moon. Any of these other, any of these other heavenly uh, bodies that uh, represent for, for a pagan world the, the source of power. No, he created those things. Okay? Genesis 2 zooms in on the, on the, the part of creation and it, it changes tone. You, you, it changes tone quite a bit. Genesis 1 almost sounds like a a poem or a dramatic presentation, all right? So an oral presentation. Chapter 2 really starts to delve into this specific act of creating man. And, the, and, and then it, it tells us how female came into being as well. Um, but in verse 7 it says, <clears throat> The Lord... We're still in this forming and filling, right? The Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He formed this being and then breathed into it. And that's the same word as spirit, right? It's breath. He breathed into it the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. He planted a garden in Eden in the east and he put the man where he, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then we start to, we, we encounter these two trees. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Oh, we have a little bit about the four rivers. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Okay, work, to cultivate, and keep means preserve, okay? And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the text emphasizes the fact that every other tree was available for food. And God, God prohibits one. Okay, now why did God do that? You ever ask yourself, now Why? <laughs> Is this a trick? Did he know they would, they would fail? Here's, here's what I'm convinced of. 
that had, not, had there not been an opportunity for man to disobey, man couldn't really live, in God, live with God in a way that exhibited free will love. Right? It wouldn't have been real love. God wanted mankind to love him. Right? And if mankind was just like an animal and loved God out of instinct or compulsion, then he wouldn't have been in the image of God. He would have been a robot or just a, an instinctually programmed being. But he said, no, here's, you're in the image of God. You have the capacity to relate to me, which means the, you have the capacity to turn away from me, to reject me. You can't have... It's not really love if there's no alternative. Does that make sense? And so God created an alternative. Okay? This is why it's so repulsive to us when we, you know, read about the, the 14-year-olds who get married, you know, to the Saudi Arabian sheiks or who, I don't know. I'm probably insulting all sorts of people here. Um, <clears throat> You know, the child bride. And it's just sort of this, this arranged marriage that, we, that, that really uh, makes us react. It's like, no, it's, that's unjust. Why? Because we don't know if she loves him or not. <laughs> right? We don't know if she would choose him or not. She has no choice. So it can't be legitimate love. Right? It would be a delusion. Same thing with us. Right? If we had no choice, what could we say about our, our great relationship with God. It would be, we would be like a child bride. Okay? It would just be this, com- this compulsory thing. But no, he puts that prohibition right there. And it says, And the Lord God commanded the man. God has commanded something. <clears throat> and he's calling for obedience. Okay? Again, there's no obedience where there's only compulsion. There's no real obedience. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Why is that? Because that's not really the full image of God. (laughs) One dude out there just doing his thing. That's not what we want. That does not reflect the good thing that's in heaven that we want to uh, that we want to multiply in the earth. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So in this naming of the animals, which is a, a familiar story to us, the naming of the animal, Adam named, I don't think he was just calling it, well, that's giraffe, that's elephant. Um, he was relating with God. They were working and keeping the garden together. This was, the, this was a combined effort. And this is what it was supposed to be. But out of, it mentions all of those animals coming to see Adam in the context of, we're looking for a helper suitable for Adam. Mm, this one's giraffe. Can reach pretty high, but it's still not a helper suitable for me. <laughs> this one's elephant. It's pretty big, heavy. Can spray water on its own back and... Surprisingly, can swim pretty well and, and all these things. But it's not a helper suitable for me. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. <coughs> but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God 
performs surgery. He puts Adam to sleep. He takes out a rib and he fashions a woman from his rib. Now, there are all sorts of 21st century questions about this. It's not meant to answer any of those. I don't know how this happened, right? If, I, I would say that a God who can, who can create from nothing and speak things into being can certainly make a rib into a woman. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said in this very first poem, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This at last. Right? I have found someone with whom I can have relationship. Okay, and this should just, this should echo for us the God's desire, let us make man in our image. Right? Male and female, he created them. Let us make man. And surely when man was formed, he would say, at last. Oh, yes. And he breathed into his, life, into his nostrils the breath of life. Well, Adam has experienced that same thing. Oh, this is, this is one that can be one with me. This is not another animal. This is not just something other than me. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So mankind is made in the image of God. Uh, They are created to rule over everything else that God has created in conjunction with God. And they are to to maintain uh, obedience to the one command that God gave them. And in that world, what was supposed to happen is they were supposed to grow in God-likeness. They were supposed to be fruitful and multiply just in the same way that God had said, you know, this is good. Let's multiply. And it was supposed to be a never ending program of of uh, rulership in the earth and a beauty and, and, and taking what God had made, which was good and bringing it further and further and further and working and keeping the ground, doing it together. Um, and we'll talk next week about what went wrong in that plan. But the thing I want us to, to focus on today and to kind of meditate on this week as we move forward is <clears throat> that, you know, we are, we, I just want to put this in context, where we are as a, as, a, as a church, okay? We are going through all of Scripture, okay? Why are we doing this? So we, we really heard from the Lord that, that we need to emphasize over the next several years, the idea, the idea of abiding in him, okay? Coming out of the fast at the end of last year. We want to abide in him and his word in us, okay? It doesn't just mean memorize a bunch of scripture. It means that God's revelation of himself to us needs to be alive in us, okay? And he does that through his word. Well, we see a lot about the word of God here in the beginning, It's his word that actually brings things into being. Cause what is very good to come forth. His word causes what should be. Okay? God's word causes what should be. 
And when, his word, when, when, we, when we receive His Word, and we live by His Word, and when we obey His Word, what should be, which is what? Life, it's blessing, it's fruitfulness, it's multiplication, it's teeming, right? Overwhelming fruitfulness. When the Word of God speaks, that's what's happening. When people disobey, as we'll read, as we'll talk about next week, when people turn away from the Word of God and say, well, this is what the Word says, but this really seems like the way to do it, that's what brings, that's what just immediately shuts off. It closes the door, it slams the face in the door, it slams the door in the face of the Creator. Okay, the one who designed all this, the one who knows how to make it just function in, in this most glorious, blessed, full, rich way. And when humans detach themselves and begin to use that free will, which is supposed to be directed toward total love of their creator, use that free will to work and keep the ground according to their own ideas, our own desires, it immediately cuts off the very source of life and blessing from that ground that they're trying to cultivate. That's why the curse is that it's going to bear thorns. You're going to work really hard, and what you're going to get for your work is just thorns. Right? That's a curse because it's not because God is just punitive. It's a curse because as they work at the ground without God, He's nowhere in it. The source of life, the source of blessing is nowhere to be found. It's just man being man. Okay, so the fallout over this next few chapters uh, through chapter 11 is showing how, is showing the consequences of mankind turning away from the Word of God and toward what seems good to us, what seems best to me, okay? And so for us, as we, as we go through this, we need to get this story in us so that we can know it, but also so that it can be for us the, the channel of the blessing of the Creator into our lives. Okay? When we read this, it's God is saying, and God said. And when we read it, and it gets in us, and when it abides in us, the very power and blessing that, that was there at the beginning that brought forth creation, that, that filled it, formed it, and filled it, forms and fills our own lives. And the life of God comes forth. So there is a way even to read Scripture that seeks to be godlike without God. And that's exactly what Eve sought. I want to be godlike, and that's what the temptation was. God knows that when you eat of this, you'll be like him. Because you'll know some stuff. <laughs> Ooh, I want, I want that. There's a way even to read Scripture that seeks to be godlike but isn't really concerned with what God has to say through Scripture. Okay? So I want us, as we, as we approach, as we d- dive into this, to just take this Genesis 1 through 2 as a lesson for us as, to the power of the Word of God and the fact that there is a Creator who knows how to bring life into the world. And so when we bring, when we bring a self-help mindset to Scripture, when we bring a modern skepticism to scripture we're no different than eve saying well i want that apple i'm going to take it 
It wasn't an apple. Sorry, it probably wasn't an apple. It's probably like a pomegranate or something. A fig, I don't know. So our approach needs to be, as we, we will not get anything out of the Bible if our approach is, is wrong. Just like Eve is not going to get anything out of the knowledge of the good and evil because it's detached from connection with the Creator. So I want to, I want to encourage us to, to approach Scripture with humility, and careful listening, okay, active waiting. Let's silence our own questions, right? And let Scripture tell us what questions it's trying to answer. Let it give us that set of lenses that we need to then turn and go, oh, we live in a world that was brought forth by the spoken word of God. And he saw it and it was good. And he has intention behind it. And he knows how it all works. We should listen to him. (laughs) We should consult him. It doesn't mean that there's something magical about the Bible, this physical Bible, whatever translation it is. But it does mean that God's revelation of himself to us, of which the Bible is a key component, uh, needs to be our primary pursuit in life. Right? It's the tree of life. Eating of the tree of life. Being filled with it, abiding, that, that's, a, I think, just another one of the many synonyms for what it means to abide in God. To constantly eat of the tree of life. To never detach ourselves from part, joint participation in our mission as humans. Joint participation with the Creator Himself. Which is awesome. And it's so, this is such a simple thing. But we really do cut ourselves off quite often from the input of the very creator of life. Right? Just think about, the, just think about like, we have a lot of moms of infants in here. Right? Is your first instinct to consult the creator of life? How do you care for an infant? Or is it to turn to like a mommy blog? Right? Or, or just try and find some other advice and just survive? Well, let's stop a minute. God made this. God gave us the capacity to bear children. Right? And I don't have any other... I'm going to stop there before I get in trouble. <laughs> this one example, I think, of, of, of ways that... Things that just echo so clearly of who God is and what His purpose is. We rush around trying to do those things in a way that's just cut off from the designer. Okay? Uh, marriage. Um, ecology. <laughs> you know? Anything else that you want to put in there? Human civilization. Um, How can we come to the place where we consult the word of the creator who exists outside of this and knows everything about it and knows how to make it a good and fruitful thing? Um, I'll close with this because we have to, we always have to bring it back to, to Christ in the Old Testament. The word of God brings life and order. And you're going to see that over and over through scripture, right? This is all that the law is, the Old Testament law. What is it? It's the word of God that's spoken to bring forth life into the, into the earth through human agents, to bring forth blessing. It's not a bunch of arbitrary rules. 
It was, hey, do this, and you, you, you won't imagine what blessing will follow you. Right? That's what the law of the Lord is. That's what the Ten Commandments is. Right? The Ten Commandments is just as dramatic and exciting as when God said, let there be light. It's the same thing. When you, when you obey the commands of God, miraculous power. The power of the Creator comes into the earth. So I want to read a couple of verses. Isaiah 55. Uh, Start in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Way is is a great Old Testament word for those lenses those spectacles through which we we view reality. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, declares the Lord. Neither are my ways your ways. You don't understand the way of the creator. There's a way of man and there's a way of God. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You see the difference? God is the creator of all things. He doesn't exist. He doesn't have, he's not subject to the arbitrariness of human life. For just as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isn't that awesome? Your ways are not God's ways. But if you forsake your way and you put on his glasses and you receive his word and live according to his word, what happens? It's just like when a, when a rainfall falls and then, and then life springs forth. That's what happens. That's what the word of God is. Finally, we can't read Genesis 1 without reading John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made which was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word is not. The word is ultimately a person. The word is Jesus. The word is Christ. Um, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. We saw the image of God and man in Jesus. Okay, so whenever we hear about the word of God or the law of God or the, anything that God says, ultimately what that means is Jesus. He is the pinnacle of God's revelation of himself to us. Um, in John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Okay, so he was in the beginning with God. And when God said, it was, it was the Son going forth, fashioning the world as the Spirit hovered over the waters. Okay, so it's all, he was all there in the beginning. And all this points to Jesus. All right? So that's, uh, that's sort of my encouragement for us. Let's, let's dig into this, but let's pay attention. Let, we are allowing the word of God come into our lives to bring life, to bring blessing. Okay? Let's posture ourselves correctly. Let's be humble. Let's, let's approach our creator as we go through scripture. Okay? And not, uh, not try and gain all the knowledge we can or, or improve our lives all we can. Let's wait on the Lord and allow our thoughts to become his thoughts and our ways to become his ways. Amen? All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, watch over us as we, um, as we go through this week. I pray that you would truly uh, meet us. Lord, I pray that um, your Holy Spirit, um, just as it was hovering over the waters, Lord, that, that when we turn to read the scriptures, Lord, that you would be hovering over our hearts and that you would speak into our hearts and minds, Lord, and that Jesus would come and reveal uh, the truth of your word to us. Lord, give us humility. Help, help us to be mastered by the word and not become masters of the word. Uh, Lord, give us that heart to, to allow your word to form us and fill us and fashion us into the people that you created us to be. Uh, Lord, we desire to bear your image in the way that we uh, were intended. And we say that that is a good purpose and it is a purpose that you uh, are still accomplishing, Lord. And you have accomplished in the person of Jesus. And as we are in him, he is the image of the invisible God. And, and, and uh, so we just exalt you, Jesus. We say that this is all about you. And ask that you would come and by the Holy Spirit uh, transform us as we, uh, as we dig into your scriptures over these next uh, weeks and months. Especially in this book of Genesis, Lord, the, the, the beginnings of things. Lord, that uh, we learn so much uh, from the beginnings. And I, I pray that, that you would lay deep foundations for the rest of our study over the next several years, God, that you would lay those into our hearts, that you would orient us right, give us those lenses, God, uh, to look at the world through. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.